Well, we thank you um, for your goodness and grace. We thank you for who Lucy is, for all that you've written on um, her heart for us this evening. And will you come now by the power of your spirit and enliven your word to us? Would you restore her with this week such a moment of joy? And would we go away really significantly changed from what she shared? to be here to see you all in this sort of uh, building fight, which is really fun. Um, yeah, so my name is Lucy. Um, for those of you I haven't met, I live just around the corner, uh, just near Putney Bridge. Uh, when I'm not at St. Dee's, um, I study part-time a Master's in Theology at St. Lightus, um, and I also work as a policy consultant at the moment. I'm working for an NGO that uh, fights modern slavery, um, which is, I wouldn't say fun, but... Um, uh, amazing work that they do. They're called Justice and Care, so do look them up. Um, so it's really good to speak to you today. Um, as Lynn said, I preached the 8.30, which is a different vibe altogether, and then the 10.30, which is another different vibe, and now we're here. So it's really good uh, to be here. So I'm going to read the passage, and then uh, we'll get into it. So we are in 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 11 to 25. And it says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honour the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So it's a jam-packed passage, uh, and we're going to get into it in a moment, but just a very quick recap on who Peter is and who he's writing to. So the letter was written about 60 AD by the same Peter who denied Jesus three times at the crucifixion and then was reinstated by Jesus. Peter is the man who Jesus said would be the rock upon which he would build his church. So the Holy Spirit has come and Christianity is spreading like wildfire and Peter's right in the heart of this movement. He actually died not long after writing this letter. And as Liz preached last week, which if you haven't listened to it, I absolutely commend it to you. It's a fantastic talk. The first chapter in Peter has kind of outlined our salvation story. Peter is explaining the message of the gospel and the hope that is held out in Jesus. He paints a picture of the coming kingdom. He talks about eternity. It's all in there. It's like the gospel 101. And then we arrive here in chapter 2. And it's kind of like, okay, 
We see what Jesus did, we're kind of beginning to understand the message of the gospel, but now what? There might be a new kingdom coming, we might, might be sort of heading into eternity with Jesus, but what do we do now in the meantime? How are we supposed to play out our days in the light of this reality? How do we fulfill our calling to be a prophetic people who look at the new creation and say, that's how it's meant to be, and I'm going to bring that creation reality into the here and now. And I'm not going to lie, Peter's got some pretty zany ideas about how we can go about that in this passage. Peter's kind of in this passage helping us to navigate the double vision life we have, where um, we've sort of got one foot in eternity and one foot firmly planted in the here and now. And this whole book is a wonderful counter to the slightly dangerous Christian perspective we can slip into, that sort of, well, Jesus is going to come back, so none of this matters anyway. Not so. The very fact that God sent Jesus, a human, into the world shows his absolute commitment to humanity, to us, to this planet he created. What we do now matters. It matters very much, and it matters because we're not operating in a vacuum. We have hundreds of people in our lives who are looking on, seeing how we live, and Peter recognises this. Peter's saying, let the watching pagans see a genuine way of being human. And how do we do that? Let's have a look. So Peter kind of offers three bits of advice that I want to tease out today, and then the passage ends with this beautiful reassurance that we're going to talk about just at the end. So three bits of advice and a reassurance. And as we go through these, it will be maybe helpful to remember these four words to, to sort of peg on to the end of these three bits of advice. For the Lord's sake. Can we grab the first slide? Um, cheers. So, number one, submit to human authority. Number two, slaves, obey your masters. And number three, follow in Christ's footsteps. And all for the Lord's sake. And just so you're aware, the first point is very much the longest. Uh, and the other two are shorter, which is, I think, the way I sound should go. Just get shorter and easier as we get towards the end. Uh, so don't panic. <laughs> if you're thinking, oh my word, it's just still on the first point. Oh gosh, I'm hungry. Um, I just had a sausage roll, so I can go for hours. <laughs> so anyway... Uh, so, submit to authority. What does Peter mean? Well, verse 13 in the message version says this. Make the master proud of you by being good citizens. Respect the authorities, whatever their level. They are God's emissaries for keeping order. So before we go any further, I think it's important for us to understand that the general concept of government is ordained and approved by God. We're not talking about party politics, but governance. We see it in Genesis 1, 28, when God says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. He's inviting humans to govern. For God who brings order out of chaos, as we know he does, we can see that governing is a good thing. Government administered properly is a tool of blessing. And most extraordinarily, actually, as Jesus faces um, Pontius Pilate, the governor presiding over his trial, he seems still to actually give legitimacy to that position. He says to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And that's John 19, 11. So Jesus acknowledges that completely imperfect as Pilate is, he has been given his position by God. So government and the rule of law reflect God's heart for order and justice. And Jesus legitimizes the government that would then murder him. And so we see in the passage that Peter is advising his readers to submit to human authority. He says whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 
And he goes on to say, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Peter's saying here, and he keeps saying it in different ways throughout the rest of the letter, react radically and unexpectedly in order to point to the one that you really serve. As a friend of mine said recently in a talk she gave, our job description is to show people how great God is. And Peter's saying, honour authority because it will show you to be humble. Let your respect for authority um, be almost as a reflection of your respect and love for the ultimate authority, God. As Lydia kind of said last week, Peter, in these, in these verses, he's not throwing grenades at the systems that exist, but he's subverting them by calling us Christians to respond differently. But, and it's a big but, respect does not mean agree. Respect does not mean collude with corruption or megalomania or dictatorship. And this is key. Throughout scripture, we see a powerful and sustained assault upon all of those who abuse power. The fact that rulers are needed in the fallen world doesn't give them license to do whatever they like. And God raises up individuals and groups to resist rulers who are not doing their job properly. Look at Moses and Esther, and more recently, look at the work of Martin Luther King, who woke governments up and rulers up to the kingdom reality of equality and justice. Christians, yes, should recognise and submit to government, but sometimes Christians should recognise and resist government. Peter's not calling us to worship the state. He's not inviting us to follow blindly the kind of rules and precepts laid out, because no ruler is perfect, and many are very, very far from it. John Tyson is a pastor of a church in New York, and he says, no nation or system led by human beings will ever be worthy of full compliance in our lives. Only God is worth that. And the church is called to speak up for the rights of those who cannot speak for themselves, to represent the rights of all who are destitute and oppressed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I've got a photo of on the slide, he's got some excellent glasses on. He was a theologian and pacifist who lived in Nazi Germany, and I'm just very, going to very briefly talk about this, but it's so worth looking up all of the things that he wrote and did, because he's an extraordinary, extraordinary man, one of the saints. And he was appalled by what he was seeing as Hitler rose to power, particularly as churches began to sympathise and collude with the regime. So Bonhoeffer ran an underground seminary, and he was part of a plot to overthrow Hitler until he was arrested and executed just days before the war ended. An eyewitness to his execution said, In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Bonhoeffer trod that line of respect, honour and resistance, And he said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. He could not stay silent. And Peter here is not advocating the kind of easygoing collusion with tyrants. Far from it. But he is challenging us to honour the authorities. So what does that actually look like today? We're living, arguably, through, and this has been living under a rock, some of the most uncertain political times in decades Every moment of the key players of our nation and international leaders is captured on film and tweeted and broadcast and picked apart and analysed. So in light of Peter's message, how should we respond? We're now going to have three sub-points of point one, hence why it's so long. (laughs) Sub-point one. (laughs) Avoid judgement and cynicism. I'm struck at the increasing levels of venom and bitterness that pepper our kind of satirical responses to politicians. I'm very much preaching to myself here as well. Mockery has no place in the kingdom of God. 
Just look at Jesus before Pilate. He spoke with grace and respect, but how many times have we torn apart Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn or Donald Trump just relishing sarcasm and cynicism? And I think sometimes as Christians, we almost give ourselves a free pass in the way we talk about politicians, like they're not our brothers and sisters. We allow anger and frustration to spill into personal attacks and cutting comments. Would Jesus approach our leaders like that? No, as we have seen. Jesus approaches leaders in submission to God. And a question for us tonight is, in your conversation about Brexit, would anyone know you're a Christian? Would you be able to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men in the way you talk about what's going on in our world? Does the language you use and the attitude you take towards our leaders, and again, you don't have to agree with them, does it point people towards the grace and love of Jesus Christ? Do we give off any sense that we have an assured hope in a future and that Christians are not a people of fear? What an opportunity we have in these uncertain days, particularly in this country, to demonstrate the kingdom reality that our futures are secure and we have nothing to be afraid of. Subpoint two, disagree with respect. We are a glorious motley crew of many and varied opinions and convictions. Just come round to me and Joe's house for dinner. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But disagree with respect. Leave room for the idea that you might be wrong on one or two things. There's a brilliant quote from The Spectator, and this was written 300, over 300 years ago, that says, A man must be excessively stupid, as well as uncharitable, who believes that there is no virtue but on his own side, and that there are not men as honest as himself who may differ from him in political principles. And in a divided nation, at the moment where you can almost draw a line right down, um, the sides of Remain and, and Brexit and, and, and Leave. Um, this is just something we have to be really careful of. And of course, protest and campaign and write letters and engage and pest your MPs, but be respectful to one another as well. And I can think of no better example of this kind of respectful disagreement than the leader of another motley crew, William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, who were just the most bonkers group of people. They're incredible. They just kind of lived together and like, shared a garden and stuff. It's amazing in Clapham. Um, so with great power and conviction, he fought against the slave trade, but he did it with respect for the institutions and processes of the day. He even harnessed them to his advantage as he advocated for an end to the trade in humans. Wilberforce's was a thoughtful and theologically informed willingness to disagree and stand against with humility and Christ-likeness and conviction. So much activism today is based in anger and hatred and self-righteousness. But as Christians, we're called to reject these things just as Jesus did. And finally, subpoint three of point one, pray. We are called to pray for our leaders to intercede. If the state of this country or the world distresses you, turn your anger to sorrow and get on your knees. Let prayer be a way that you bring the coming kingdom into the present. Prayer is an effective tool of engagement in politics. Karl Barth says the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. Aren't we called to be those kind of people? Pray in those promises for our government and our nation and our world. So, honour the authorities for the Lord's sake. That was the super long point. Point number two, slaves obey your master. 
I've kind of wrestled with these verses a bit because I've never quite understood them. I've never quite understood what Peter's meaning. So I was actually really grateful when um, Tim and Liz asked me to preach on this. I thought, oh, good, I actually have to spend some time trying to understand it, try and make sense of it. And I think first and foremost, um, we need to understand that these verses do not undermine God's heart for justice. They do not contradict the word when it says that Jesus came to set free the captives and the oppressors. And the oppressed, sorry, and the oppressors. God's heart is for justice to flow like a mighty river. He uses his people to achieve this end. Look at the amazing work of IJM who we partner with and others who work to end the scourge of modern slavery today. I was woken up to that appalling reality a number of years ago and I've spent a lot of my career um, working with people who are trying to end uh, modern slavery, which is an appalling abuse of human rights and dignity. And I believe wholeheartedly that God's will is to see those enslaved set free from abuse and violence. Back to Bonhoeffer when he says, we are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And this passage does nothing to contradict that. I think Peter's saying something quite different. So just bear with me as we kind of try and unpack it. Number one thing actually to note is that Peter's speaking to Christian slaves, slaves who know Jesus. And he's inviting them to radically challenge those who oppress them by using grace and humility. To radically challenge those who oppress them using grace and humility. Does that remind you of anyone? Jesus. Answer's always Jesus. <laughs> we learned that at Sunday school. So what's Peter getting at when he asks slaves to obey their masters? He's asking Christians to shop with their radical grace. Point to Jesus in the way that your behaviour so closely reflects him. Can I have the next slide? Uh, Joe and I have recently been enjoying the BBC adaptation of um, Les Mis, which is essentially a story of grace and redemption, kind of masquerading as a drama about the French Revolution. And there's this incredible moment captured here when Jean Valjean, who's been on the run from a fairly sociopathic police officer, Javert, uh, who wants to punish him unjustly. Uh, Jean Valjean has the opportunity to exact his revenge. He's face to face with Javert, everything's kicking off in Paris, and, and Jean Valjean's got a, a gun in his hand. And he lets him go free. And Javert cannot believe it. He's stunned. He's devastated. He's disturbed by the fact that uh, he, he can't understand it. And sadly, it leads to his death. He's almost unable to live in a world where such a system of grace operates. Now, obviously, that's not the response Jesus wants from us when he offers us grace. But the outrageous, radical, culture-subverting grace we exhibit, particularly when we bear up under unjust suffering, is powerful and transformative. And actually, these verses about slaves, I think they're more about Jesus. They tell us of his sacrifice and his humility, the agonizingly human experience of God. They show us the God who was willing to endure torture and suffering so that people would know him. So Jesus is not asking for anything he's not done himself. In inviting slaves to obey their masters, Peter is um, inviting Christians to just simply exemplify Jesus. Be so like him that people cannot help but notice something different. Drag those kingdom values into the now. And finally, of these three bits of kingdom living advice that Peter's giving us, follow in Christ's footsteps in suffering. And this bit is hard and it's scary to preach on because it's really real. 
And I'm actually not going to go um, into too much detail because the next chapter of the book unpacks it more. And brilliant, Matt Thomas is going to be preaching next week about that. So um, I promise that's not me passing the buck. Um, but it's an incredible concept and I'm so excited for us to learn uh, more about it. But the passage says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. To suffering you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Good grief. It's kind of a further extension of the previous part about slaves and masters. Peter's saying take every opportunity to be like Christ, even if it means submitting to oppression because that's what Jesus suffered. And somehow our suffering under injustice is caught up with the suffering of Christ. In reflecting the experience of Christ, of Christ, we come to know Christ better. Perhaps Peter's even suggesting that by mirroring Christ's suffering, the world itself might be brought to a new place as it struggles to understand our response and perhaps sees Jesus. And this kind of behaviour also kind of shows incredible faith in God as judge. As the passage says of Jesus in verse 23, and this is the message version, he suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. To bear up under injustice is to say, I trust that God's justice will come. It might be now, it might be when Jesus comes back. In bearing up under suffering, we're trusting that God's victory will play out in the kingdom to which we are bearing witness now. But I just want to ask you this, and I ask myself the same question. Is there actually any chance you're going to suffer for your faith? Is, it, is there any chance that you're going to suffer for your faith? That might mean being a bit less popular at work because you don't join in with unedifying banter or a destructive drinking or drugs culture. Or perhaps even more outrageous for British Christians, you might make things socially awkward by talking about Jesus a lot. You already might be one of those people who, uh, when someone has lost their keys, you say, you need the keys to the kingdom, brother. <laughs> or when a colleague is getting a drink from the water cooler, you kind of sidle up and say, Thirsty, let me tell you about the living waters. <laughs> but joking aside, how likely is it that you, would, you will suffer for your faith and I'm not talking about suffering generally, which is something that we all experience and is a different thing. Peter's talking about suffering for your faith, for the fact that you believe in Jesus. How likely is that? How many situations are you entering into where you'll be made unpopular because of the truth that you are proclaiming? Are you avoiding those situations? I can tell you it's unlikely that we're going to suffer anything like the suffering that is experienced by our brothers and sisters across the world in persecuted areas. Just visit the Open Doors website for more information on that. But it's a huge call. Take up your cross and follow him into suffering. Not follow him into a life of cosy Christianity, but costly faith. And this passage seems to be kind of saying we should be chasing that cost. And not just because the kind of rubber of our faith is hitting the road of our culture but also simply because Christ suffered. And so when we suffer, we get to know Jesus a little bit better. When we are in the pit facing injustice, maybe facing insults or um, whatever it might be, we turn and we see our Saviour there with us. He endured it too. He endured it first. 
John Tyson, the pastor I mentioned in New York, says that the cross of the Christian today is for many of us the price of social non-conformity. He says it's the end of the path freely chosen after carrying the cross. It is the social reality of representing the order to come to an unwilling world. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Be ready to live your faith with such conviction that you're willing to die at the hands of the state or the rulers, or perhaps more likely for us to die to your pride or your social standing, your position amongst your peers, for the sake of the Lord. And so, after these weighty calls to be this kind of living signal of the kingdom to come, we arrive at a reassurance. After all of these challenges to live radically, to live sacrificially, to live a life so countercultural that people cannot help but notice that you are different, Peter ends the passage with the ultimate reassurance. It's kind of like a ship coming in from stormy, scary waters, and it comes to rest in the harbour of these words. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's all going to be okay. Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls to receive the encouragement you need to live the life he has called you to. None of this is pointless. Come back to the loving Father. Know his voice like sheep know the voice of their shepherd. Understand his heart and it all makes more sense. Do it without him and you're just a slightly odd person keeping quiet while someone assassinates your character at work because of your faith or your peers are mean about you or your laughter. Do it with him, giving a reason for the hope you profess and the grace that you show. A hope that is bound up in Jesus. And relish the joy that follows. The joy of knowing more deeply the person of Jesus. As you submit to authority, as Jesus did. As you bear up under unjust suffering, as Jesus did. And as you signal to the people around you a hope and a promise of what is to come, as Jesus did. We are set apart to be a living signal of the new world for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, we welcome you. We thank you for your presence. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to the very depths of our being, the very specific things that you want to say to us. We're listening, and we love you and we trust you. And Father, I pray that you would teach us more of what it looks like to follow your example. The cost. We want to be a people who signal what is to come. And we don't want to be held back by fear. So Holy Spirit, come and uh, do a work amongst us now, we pray.